Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. My name is Isaac. I am 10 years old. I finished fourth grade. Um, I learned about um, division, division and um, decimals, some more math, <laughs> that stuff there. What he was, um, when he was given to God, he had, um, he had a promise that he would grow, that he would have strength. And if he cut his hair, he would um, lose that strength. When he was a little grown up, um, he met Delilah, which him, who Delilah worked with the Philistines, who cut, who helped the Philistines cut his hair, so Samson could stop going in and out without any and destroying stuff. How strong do you think um, Samson was? Pretty strong. He could probably um, break through a wall, like two inches thick. Two inches. What else do you think if Samson was here today with all his strength? What do you think he'd do for fun? Probably um, do like some heavyweight championship thing, like wrestling, stuff like that, just for fun and give it some in. Why did Delilah cut Samson's hair? Because the Philistines, um, Philistines bribed her for money, for like, for like 120,000 pieces of 120, 200, 1,200 pieces of silver from each leader. So there'd probably be five, like five, so 520, 200. So she just went for it because that's a lot of money. How much money do you think that would be today? Couple two thousand, like three thousand, four thousand. What would you do if you were given that kind of money? Mm, um, I'd probably spend it on some stuff and maybe save it. And just see what I want. If I want like a, a wave runner, probably that boat, stuff like that. If I can probably get a mansion by the beach and stuff like that, so. Do you think you would have told her the, your secret? Mm. If I found out that she was working with the Philistines, I would just leave. If I didn't, mm, I'd sort of not, sort of. If she wanted to, it looked kind of suspicious, so probably no, or give her like a something false. He said, I can break through a new lever straps. And she, when he fell asleep, she did that. And he broke it. And she kept trying and trying. And he just kept doing it and doing it. He told her because she probably, he probably trusted her. her but when she told the, um, she told the Philistines, and when they cut his hair, she, he knew he lied. She lied and she didn't trust her anymore. This is um, Samson when he is, um, his hair is gonna get cut off and right there's Delilah. Didn't make the best. And what is she saying? Um, Samson, wake up. The Philistines are here. We have to trust certain people that we know. So if it's like a stranger, don't tell them anything. But if it's like your best friend or your like um, family member that you can trust, you can tell them. Love that video. What would you spend it on? Oh, I'd buy a wave runner and a house. And it's great. Church, happy Sabbath. 
Those of you who are maybe new to our congregation, those words seem kind of foreign to you. It's just a greeting that we share. We love each other and grateful for the blessing of a space of rest. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, your church has gathered. Your people are here, hungering, yearning for something more, something they have not maybe received yet. Father, this morning, God, I pray No matter what happens, Jesus, may your spirit come on your people. Father, let everything else fall away in this world, but God, do not write our names in another book than your book of life. God, we want to be there with you. And Father, I pray, Jesus, would you pour out your grace on your people this morning. Baptize us in your Holy Spirit. And Father, speak in spite of me. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's interesting right now. My wife and I are trying to help our daughter grow. She's three and a half months old, and she does not want to go to sleep at night. She just doesn't. She doesn't want to nap in the afternoons. And another thing she doesn't want to do is she doesn't want to drink the milk in the bottle. Elena takes all the time to pump and put it in, and she just, no, no. She doesn't say it like that, but she moves her head around, and you just can't get it in. Man, it is frustrating. It's difficult. It's challenging. As anyone would know, growth is a process. It just is. Our child surviving is not simply just getting her one meal and being like, made it finally. This is great. She ate and never feeding her again. That would be abuse and we would be in jail. (laughs) But the journey of growth is this process of one feeding to another feeding to another nap to another care and then she grows and gets older and older. The same thing goes for faith. Faith is not a singular event. And not a singular event when you decide what you think about maybe some of the most important questions of life's history. Who is Jesus to you? What's the purpose and meaning of life? What happens when you die? Will I be saved? That doesn't just happen after one prayer, one sermon, one encounter, or one day. It's a process. But could it be, could it just be that we creatures of habit have made it out to be an event? If you do this, you're done. You're saved. You're in. The person that we encounter this morning, our character of analyzing, is someone who some people would say, uh, you're a believer? I don't know about that. But as we look at this character, we then look at the hand pointing back and the fingers, one, two, three, looking at me and saying, you a believer? You are a believer? I know what you've done. I know what country you're from. I know the things you've said. I know the things your coworkers have talked about you. I know what you did when your kids weren't watching. I, I know. But you see, it isn't about the momentary things we do in this life. It's about the process of who we are becoming. Pull out your sermon introduction, your bulletin. This morning, I'm going to encourage you to join me on a journey of following me with some notes and some fill-in blanks. And so I want to start off by asking you this question. Have you ever heard of the term called faithing? Faithing. It's a term that's been used now in Youth and Young Adult Studies on Development. It's one of the second blanks after the first question. And there it's defined as the following. Faithing is, as a child grows into owning and embodying their own journey with God, as they encounter new experiences and new information. 
It's the process. It's not an event. Redefining faith as a process and not an event. And it's with this that we now jump into our text of study this morning. Jump with me to John chapter 3 and verse 1. And let's look at this story of our first character of analyzing an imperfect believer. Acts 3 verse 1 and the story begins. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. This man named Nicodemus called him a rabbi? What else do we know about the scenario, the circumstance? Well, Nicodemus is a Greek name, a Greek name meaning victory of the people, Or another interpretation of the name is conqueror of the people. has a very different meaning. We might look at him and say that this guy was actually more of a conqueror of the people. Why do I say that? It also says he was a Pharisee. Pharisee being one of those who knew the law. But not only that, he was also one who was a ruler of the people, indicating that he was of the Sanhedrin. Is the ruling power. It also says he was wealthy. But it also says he came at night. He came at night? What does that mean that he came at night? I want you to fill in that blank with me. Just put your own thought down. What does that mean that he came at night? Sanhedrin, ruler, wealthy, Pharisee, older gentleman, why would he come at night? Could it be, if I were to impersonate maybe a person from New York, part of the mafia, that he was a company man, as you call it? Hey, listen, Jesus. We and the boys, we heard about what you're doing. We like it. We like it a lot. We want you to join our team. You help us, we help you, huh? You understand? Good, good, good. Could it be that this Nicodemus was cautious and secretive, maybe a company man, maybe one who's trying to do a backhanded deal, and he doesn't want anyone to follow him. He doesn't want anyone to follow him to the Savior. But what we also know is that maybe Nicodemus was making logical steps along the way of a process. What logical steps had he had made? He called Jesus a teacher, a rabbi. Some people may be offended by this significantly. Man, you see, he didn't call him Lord. He should have known better. But one commentator writes on this saying that actually him calling Jesus a rabbi was significant. Jesus was uneducated in their terms, and he had no formal invitation to teach. Jesus was given a title that he himself carried. I am the rabbi. He was giving him a stance of equality with him. That was significant. What else did he say? He said, your works are not that of any man. Your works are from God. He was starting to make another logical step in the right direction. I'll tell you, sometimes it's hard, though. It's hard, though, when you want people to make the decision that you yearn for, that you made. Many of you are sitting in these pews without your children, without your friends, without those buddies from childhood, from high school, from college, the guys you went to church with, the girls that were in your dorm rooms. Where are they They didn't make the same faith decision you did. And you wonder, 
I can't believe them. I can't believe this. But what if? What if it's not the end for them? And what if you as a Christian, as a Seventh-day Adventist believer who comes in, pays your tithe, comes in weekly, you do the Bible studies, you sing the songs, you try and raise your kids to know Jesus, but what if maybe, just maybe, you might still also be missing something? What if you striving that they make that decision right now, right here, do it the way I did it, do it the way everyone else did it. Be here with me. What? Now. I had the opportunity to do some Bible studies with a young man of an Asian background there in Orange County where I was pastoring previously some years ago. My elder and I decided we would go knock door to door and just ask people who were surrounding our neighborhood, hey, could we be praying for you for something? Are you interested in Bible studies at all? And one young man answered the door, and he was really interested. And he really wanted to study about this Jesus guy. He came from a non-Christian background. His mom was really excited. She wanted us to come again. We came again. And that next week, we studied about Jesus and his significance. We get to the end of the Bible study. I look at the young man, and I say, so, well, what do you decide? What do you think? Are you going to decide for him or not? What is it? And the elder kind of grabbed my hand and gave me a look. He was much older than me, and he had done many Bible studies in his life. And then he whispered over to me, calm down. Let the boy think. Sometimes we see this as an event moment and forget that, again, it is a process, a movement into a direction that may just take a lifetime. We go on with the story, jumping into John chapter 3 and beginning now again in verse 3. And there the story continues. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter or see, rather, the kingdom. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Imagine looking at a woman who's at eight and a half months, almost at delivery, and you say, you know what? You're going to have to start over at week one. Not working. Are you serious? The nausea, the vomiting, the first, second, and third trimester, all over? All over. Yep. Or what if you looked at a toddler and you looked at the parent and you knew the toddler was just a terror? And you said, listen, this kid is a terror now. But when he becomes an adult, he will just be terrible. Can we start this over at the very beginning? Jesus, looking at Nicodemus, says, you must be born again. This phrase in our modern society does not make sense. Born again? Born again is a phrase that there was a survey done by a magazine in New York. Er. And they talk about people who are known as born-again Christians. And they labeled them in all kinds of terms. And the question was asked, would you want a born-again Christian to be your neighbor? The overwhelming majority said no. What are we labeled as? What are people known as who are born again? But could it be that this modern understanding of what born again is is not what Jesus intended or meant? Could it be that there's something so much more to this Adventist Christian experience than you and I have ever pondered or wondered? Could it just be that Jesus might be looking at you today and saying, you, my friend, who've been in this church, who've sat in these pews, who've journeyed with Christ, quote-unquote, for all these years, 
you just might need to be born again. But it doesn't make sense that he would say that to Nicodemus, though. Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And what we know about Pharisees is that these people were devout religious people. They were like, like, like us. He was a religiously devout person. He understood the law, the Torah, the scriptures. He yearned to faithfully follow it as best he could. And he was a leader of the people. And yet Jesus looks at him and he says, in essence, nothing that you have done to this point counts in becoming a citizen of heaven. Could it be that Jesus might be speaking to you and to me that you might just be like Nicodemus? Everything you've been doing up to this point spiritually, everything that you've been grown, that you grew up with, hearing about, wondering about, studying about, pursuing, could it be that none of it really matters in making you an actual citizen of heaven? God, what are you saying to me? Nicodemus completely startled, one commentator writes, an Adventist commentary, and he says that he was startled because he heard Jesus affirm something he was not used to. He understood that non-Jews must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. But the idea that he, a circumspect Jew, a faithful Seventh-day Adventist Christian, stood outside the circle of salvation was a new and disturbing thought. Nicodemus knew that Jesus did not speak of physical rebirth, hence his response did not imply he actually thought so. He simply acknowledges the impossibility. Jesus was calling Nicodemus to more than a moral and life change. If you think it's about living a more upstanding and moral life, you've lost it. You won't make it. What? What do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean this. You've heard people talk about people in the past, haven't you? Hey, she's a really good person. Man, goes to church, does this, this, and oh, wonderful girl, doesn't sleep around. She'd be perfect for you. Is that all it, it is? is? Is it just signified by the actions someone does outwardly? That's part of it. But could there be more? Could there be more? Could there be more that Jesus was calling Nicodemus to? Could there be more that Jesus is calling you and I to? Could there be more that Jesus is calling our denomination to? The message of the new birth is a call to start at zero, ground zero. Build a life based on a foundation we might have never seen or felt yet. Could it be possible that the faith you and I have been holding on to for all these years might simply be milk? Could it be that Jesus is calling you and I today and saying, stop sucking the bottle. It's time for you to go deeper. It's time for you to go further than you've been before. It's time for you, Pharisee, to be someone I've needed you to be all your life. I grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian all my life. I've known no other journey. And it was when I was 19 years old, this pastor's kid who could argue with anyone, spout out of Scripture, who could tell anyone a defense for the faith, it was me who needed to be baptized again.
who needed to be reborn again. Because I finally encountered Jesus for who he really was. I worry that many of our young people, that many up into their 80s, are living under a false pretense and an assurance that they are set and secure because they are identified with those who are known as the truth keepers. And simply because they're within the circle of this name, therefore they are in the name with Jesus in heaven. Friend, if you miss the point of Nicodemus' call to be reborn, you might just miss the greatest call of God on your life. And Jesus goes on, and he looks at Nicodemus, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is of born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and it hears its sound, but you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus looked at him. Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't even understand these things? Truly I say to you, hmm. imagine if you're sitting there and you're listening to a doctor speak, you're hearing your dentist talk about your teeth and you're like, this person doesn't even know what they're talking about. Have you even been to dentistry school? Have you gotten a graduate degree? That's what Jesus is looking at this guy. This was a master of the people, a master of the Torah. And he says to him, you obviously have no idea. What an insult that must have felt like. Me? Do you know all the years that I've spent going to school? Do you know who I am do you understand the title I bear in this hospital? Do you recognize what people think of me in the schools? Do you know what I am in my workplace? I am competent. And yet Jesus says to him, you're completely incompetent in what really matters. commentator speaking about this, he says his knowledge of salvation was only theoretical. It was based on false theory at that. If Nicodemus had experienced the new birth, he would not only understand it himself, but be able to speak it intelligently to others. The calling on a leader is immense. During the early 17th and going into the 18th century, revival erupted in North America and in England. It was powerful. It was palpable. It was intense. But the question you always have to ask yourself, if there is revival, what is the opposite experience of what was happening? Complete apathy. People emerge into the Americas because there's persecution and fear of surviving in their faith. And preachers seeing the apathy and maybe even the preachers themselves being apathetic. And a revival erupts. And one revivalist by the name of Gilbert Tennant a Presbyterian minister who was part of one of those early reformers of the faith of that century, he said in a book called The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, he said, what if in some instances there could be shown that unconverted min ministers might be instrumental in convincing persons of their lost state? The thing is very rare and extraordinary, he said. It is this reason why the work of conviction and conversion has been so rarely heard for a long time. In these churches, as of late, 
the bulk of her spiritual guides are blind and stone dead. This was written back then. And Jesus, 1,700 years even before that, looked at Nicodemus and said the same thing. You are spiritually blind and stone dead, my friend. Wow. This morning, I want to challenge you then to ask yourself this question. If it is of this great importance, if it is of this great significance, then how do you and I know if we are converted? How do we know if we have experienced this new birth? How do we know if we've been reborn? It is to that question we move to next. St. Augustine writes that it is a reorienting, a reordering of the heart's loves. Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, attacks the gods of our age, sex, money, success, and power. And he sends it's a reordering of these passions where no longer do those gods take first and foremost precedence in our lives. But it becomes that the kingdom of God and his love for us takes first place. But if you saw a reborn person, would you know? If you saw one, would you know? I was a chaplain last year at a hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we usually get called at last minute before someone dies. The family urgently needs us, and that's the call I got that day. Please, Pastor, one of these families really needs you there. The family member is dying at the moment. Absolutely, I'll be there. I open the curtain, slide it aside I, I walk in and usually the family's there they come up to the pastor oh pastor so glad that you're here and then we talk about their family member a little bit and and just what's happening how's it going and and as we're talking about the family the wife says this there's one person that's not here oh who's that his brother his brother's not here i'm thinking oh that's too bad he's not here and and then she says, no, actually, you know, I, I don't want him to be here. Oh, really? Why is that? Well, it was his last wish. It was his last wish that the brother wouldn't be here. It was his last wish that his brother would not be here when he's dying. It was his last wish? Yeah. Those were actually the last words that he said. Wow. Okay. Not, I, I love you, honey. Not, I wish I could have made peace with him. Not, I wish things could be different, but don't let him be here. Would you see rebirth if it was looking at you in the face? Pastor Tabiti Anyabwile in his book, What is a Healthy Church Member, outlines these four tests of what new birth might look like. And he says the first test is the belief test. It is a question that you can ask yourself, do I trust in Jesus Christ and his salvation? The belief test. Do I trust in Jesus Christ and believe in his salvation. 1 John 5, 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God is saved. Second test is the obedience test. He says, ask yourself this question. Does my life show a pattern of habitual unrepentant sin or of repenting for sin? And striving to walk in the light. And then he quotes 1 John 1, 6 through 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and with God. The third test, the love test. And he says, ask yourself this question. 
Do I love other Christians in concrete ways that show the reality of my faith? Quoting 1 John 3, verses 14 to 15, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and know that no murderer has abiding love with me. But he goes on beyond that, and he says there's one fourth test. It's known as the perseverance test. And he asked this question, am I continuing in the faith in spite of the struggles and oppositions and hardships in my life, family, and church? And he quotes 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for they had never been of us, or they would have continued in the faith. Wow. So then what is this new birth exactly? I'm going to share with you three shifts of what the new birth emerges as, a shifting, a sliding of the process. Firstly, it is a psychological shift. What do I mean by that? Augustine, in his confessions, many of you have probably read that, recounts a story of going into a new town or actually an old town that he had visited many times before in his young age. Prior to this, he had been fairly promiscuous sexually before he had come to a new birth. And he walks into this town, and there's this one woman. He knows her very well, knew her very intimately. And she walks up to him, Augustine, Augustine, trying the English accent. It's not working very well. Augustine, it's me. And he kind of formally, you know, acknowledges her and, and he kind of keeps going. And she confused, completely disturbed by this, and she thinks, he must know who it is. He must not recognize that it's me. And he looks down, kind of cast, and thinking about this woman, knowing exactly who it was. And he hears her voice in the distance saying, Augustine, it is I. It is I, Augustine. And to this he lifts his head up and he looks towards her. And he says, I know it is you, but it is no longer I. This psychological shift is a moving from who we once were, who we thought we were. It's a shift in the mind. It's a reorienting of our desires. It's a complete brain surgery, if you would have. But not only is this a psychological shift, it's an organic shift. My wife and I have truly jumped into planting and gardening in the major way. Some people would say we're a little bit crazy with it. We have seven large garden boxes in front of our house, in front of our house, in the front yard, right by the road, so everyone can take anything they want. Nobody has yet? Please keep it that way. But what if, for instance, the illustration would go as such, if the raspberry patch that's right there, which I truly enjoy, take raspberries every day from, but what if I looked at Elena and I said, babes, raspberries are great, but you know what I wish we had right here? Peaches. Peaches. I wish this raspberry vine would instead produce these luscious, beautiful peaches. Elena, I know you're good at this soil fertilization process, put some uh, Epsom salt, put some chemicals, put whatever you need in there so that the vine would then produce peaches. Is that crazy? <laughs> of course it's crazy. She would look at me as I'm an idiot. But what if that's exactly what we want to do with God? God, I want to be more faithful to you. I want to serve you better. I want to live for you, Lord. And we say that without understanding that it's an organic shift. You must actually uproot the raspberry and plant then the peach. You actually have to have your life in which you envisioned it to be like uprooted and have God's life 
planted. If you want to be reborn, the organic shift must start at the root level, not at the leaf level. It's no longer about the actions of your life. It's about the heart of your life from which the actions are born. George Knight, Adventist historian and theologian, talks about this in his little short book with a powerful bang on sin. It's, I used to be perfect. And he outlines this idea that there are two types of sin. There's the sin with the little s, which are the actions of misgivings of our life. You steal, look at a little pornography here and there, you gamble here and there, you do these things you shouldn't, you lie. You... These are the little s sins of our life. But he says there's something more dangerous, more prevalent in our life. And that is the big S sin. The sin with the capital S. The sin that starts off the little s's. It is the sin of replacing Jesus in your heart with you. It is an organic shift, but it is not only that, it is lastly a salvation shift. It is a shift that says, I cannot be reborn out of more good doing from my life. It is an organic shift, but it is beyond that. It is a replanting constantly, a replanting saying, no, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you to help. How many of us have strived to do good works all our life and struggled with the same sin for decades? I remember as a young high schooler, went to a Sabbath school class for youth, and this one older man was there in his 60s. He was one of the assistants. Nothing wrong with people in their 60s. My mother-in-law is in her 60s. I didn't really mean anything with that, but. <laughs> but he looks at me and he's talking and, and he says, there's something I've struggled with all my life. I've struggled with cursing. And I said, how long have you struggled? Ever since I was a teenager, I just can't stop cursing. Salvation for him was at the level of the little S's. His journey with Christ was at the little S's. He thought it was about his actions when Jesus wanted to convert his heart. Where at the heart level, he would convert him and soften him and mold him and put him into a place where the little S's no longer mattered in that same way as they once did. And he would begin to see those little S's disappearing from his life because the true good fruit would then emerge. But you see, we become so concerned, this is a box I want you to fill in. We become so concerned about a person's faith before baptism, but not as much after baptism. We want to see people make a decision for Christ. We want that event, we want that stage where there's a hundred people saved. And I am all for that. I am. I, I love being a pastor and baptizing people, but guess what? In our Adventist statistics that were just produced that came out several years ago, over the past 50 years, we've baptized 31 million people in our Adventist denomination worldwide. Whoa. Some denominations baptize more, some less. This is what God has given us. But guess what? 11 million have walked out the back door. Because it's not about them just getting baptized in the tank. It's about journeying with them to ensure that they too have a new birth life daily. And it's to Jesus who we give the credit of recognizing he needed to grow a disciple intentionally and one-on-one. -on -one. And he said to him, entrusting in him the oracles of one of the most famous and poignant and powerful verses of all time, John 3, 16. 
he goes on to tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who so ever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. When I was given this sermon topic, I had no idea that this beautiful text was a part of Nicodemus' story. I just had forgotten. But you see, it's to this story that the Adventist, the person sitting in this pew, whatever denomination you're part of, it is to this story that God has given you this Sabbath afternoon. It is this sermon that God has given you. you whether you wanted to hear a different preacher, you wanted to hear Pastor Randy, you couldn't get him. I'm sorry. He's elsewhere. But for some reason, God wanted you to hear this sermon about Nicodemus because maybe, just maybe, it's about you hearing the most basic fundamental truth again that you and I, we need a heart replacement. Old Testament verse I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If you want that heartbeat of flesh, if you want that reconversion life, it is yours for the taking. But it's about also in the midst of the process that a decision is made. John Piper, author and pastor, he tells a story of his father in a book entitled Don't Waste Your Life. His father was a preacher and evangelist there in the, earth, in the 19th, um, 1900s, and he tells of the story when his father was preaching this passionate story, and at the end of the sermon, he made this appeal, and there was one old gentleman who the church had been praying for for years. And he prayed and prayed and prayed for him. And it was on that day his father was preaching that this old man came up, grabbed the preacher's hand, and started to cry. And it was on this day that an event in the midst of his entire life's process came to fruition. He made a decision to follow Jesus. And it was in this moment the tears kept flowing, but they didn't stop. Pastor Piper looked at this old man, sat down with him at the pew and said, you've made the greatest decision of your life. Why are you continuing to cry? And he looked at him, because I wasted it. What do you mean you wasted it? You made the best decision ever. I wasted my life without him. Friend, you may not be this older gentleman who looks back on his life because he never made a decision for Christ saying, I wasted it. But you might be that Pharisee like Nicodemus, like I was, who I call myself a recovering Pharisee. That might be you today. If it is you on this end or on this end, it matters not. Jesus is calling you again today. Be reborn. Revival preachers would preach their sermons and people would come forward on the anxious bench. The title for the first few benches of every church where people would respond to the message, hearing the stirring in their heart. I don't care if you come to the front pew today. I don't care if you come forward today. I don't care if you sit in your pew and make a decision. But in the midst of the process, a decision has to be made. Because you see, Nicodemus' story doesn't end with this interview story with Jesus. It ends at the cross. And Nicodemus, in John chapter 19, was one of those who helped pull Jesus off the cross. Something a Pharisee would never do. He would never touch a dead person. It would make him unclean. And he would never spend money on someone who would be deemed as an unrighteous person dying. But he spent thousands of dollars on Jesus, anointing his body, preparing the spices for his tomb. 
Nicodemus made a decision. There's a beautiful quote by Ellen White on the life of Nicodemus. I want you to take home and read and ponder. Friends, I want you today to make a decision. It may not be today, but it might be. But I want you to remember three things. Three things I want you to write down. God is at work in dark places on dark nights. That's number one. God is always at work in dark places. That's number one. In places you think are hopeless, the kids that you don't see in the pew, the family members, the friends that you're like, man, they should be here. God is at work in dark places. Philippians, so I would tell you, be patient. Genesis 1-2, the spirit hovered over the deep, over the darkness. Number two, people are not always all good or all bad, so be merciful. We judged Nicodemus. We judge others in our life who don't look like us, don't share our beliefs, don't share the way of doing things like we do. Be merciful, my friend. Look up Luke 6.36. Number three, pray for those who need Jesus till their last breath. Do not give up on anyone because Jesus didn't give up on them. What does it say about us when we give up on those who have need of our prayers? Be hopeful. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it till he comes. I'll leave you with this short poem. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. As we sing this last song, if you want to come forward, you can. If you want to come forward in your heart, you can. But today, make a decision like the rabbi did.